all do. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. You know, I sometimes get a question that makes me want to set people on fire. Now, I'm not normally a violent person. In fact, I'm probably too passive in real life. But when people ask me what other old English Christmas things I like besides Dickens' Christmas Carol, I admit that I almost lose my cool. I suspect these are the same people who say that they never quite got Shakespeare's old English when they had to read him. I just... I cannot... Dickens did not use Old English. Shakespeare did not use Old English. Old English is a separate language altogether. It means Anglo-Saxon, the language spoken in England before William took his French buddies across the Channel in 1066. It's so different that it's further away from Shakespeare than he is from us. Sounds like this. What we gardena din yer dagum, thayud keninga thrum ye frunnen, who the other lingers ellen fremadon, oft chill shaving shalana threatum, monium maigdum, mayer settler oft there. That's Beowulf, which was written in proper Old English. There was even an entirely separate language that came between Old English and Shakespeare called Middle English. People used to have to memorize bits of it in high school when they read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and it sounds like this. One that April, with his surest sorter, the drooft of March hath pursed to the rota, and bathed every vine in switch liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the flour. Now, why, you may ask, am I semi-rage lecturing you about English philology on a light-hearted Christmas podcast? Frankly, I have no idea. Deep down, I'm just the kind of nerd who does that sort of thing. But I guess it's because I wanted to do a show about Christmas during the Middle Ages. And I spent way too many years in grad school studying all these types of English for others not to even know they exist. It's, look, it's projection. Grad school does things to you. It leaves scars. Luckily, it also makes you friends. And I got two of them from those days to talk to me on a microphone for this weird little hobby of mine. Like me, both of these folk escaped those dark days of grad school with their sense of self-esteem only slightly traumatized, and went on to bigger and better things. But they also both know a ton about the literature of the Middle Ages, so I asked them to find what they could about medieval Christmas stuff. And the reason I was curious was because I expected that they couldn't find very much. Now that probably seems surprising, especially if you're one of those people who believes in the whole war on Christmas thing. The whole premise of that conspiracy is that Jesus was always the reason for the season, like for 2,000 years, and then materialism and secularization have screwed things up in the last century. But here's the fact. Christmas was never a big deal until it got wrapped up with drunken revelry in the 15 and 1600s or so, and then commercialism ever since the Victorians. Both the English and American Puritans wanted it banned as soon as it got big back in the day. And I should do a whole show about that sometime. But before that, it's actually really, really hard to even find mentions of Christmas for about 1,500 years after Baby Jay was born. So I thought I'd do a show about Christmas in the Middle Ages to cover that Dark Age of Christmas. By the way, never call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages around medievalists. Put them in a really bad mood. But with Christmas, it actually kind of fits. There's just not much recorded. And that seems weird because the Middle Ages were the time when the Catholic Church dominated Europe. Culturally, politically, even times economically, you'd think the birth of the little kid at the center of it all would be like a big propaganda opportunity. It turns out not so much. And that leaves us with a ton of questions. What did knights do at Christmas? How did the lords and ladies celebrate? Or did they? What about the lower classes? What the heck even is medieval Christmas? Turns out it's a really hard question to answer. 
But that's what Misty and Scott are here to help us with. Or, sorry, I should be more formal. That's what Dr. Misty Sheberly, Associate Professor of English at the University of Kansas, and Dr. Scott T. Smith, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Penn State, are going to help us with. They're both medievalists, which some of you may not know is a real thing. But it's also awesome, because they get to spend their time reading and thinking about cool old stuff. Scott also teaches courses on horror and genre fiction, and he's written about graphic novels. And Misty has written a lot about gender and politics in medieval literature, as well as winning a ton of teaching awards. I put their full impressive bios up on the show notes. Once we shared a classroom, now they have long CVs, and, and I have a podcast. But I digress. Scott's specialty is Anglo-Saxon, the real old English that goes back to a handful of centuries after Jesus was born. So I figured we'd start with him. Well, first of all, Christmas, as we think of it, wasn't it wasn't the premier holiday, um, religious holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, Easter, I think, would have been more important. So like in liturgical stuff, um, in, in documents that date, uh, important events that they'll reference Easter more often than, than the Christmas season. But there there are some interesting uh, references. Uh, Bishop Edgbert, who's Bishop at York in the early uh, 8th century, but he's talking about holy festivals throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And he actually describes Christmas. Uh, he doesn't call it that, right? Um, but it's, it's the uh, uh, Natale Domini, so like the birth, the Lord's birth or so Christmas isn't actually used as a word. I think that word's not attested till later. A Christ's Mass. So yeah, it's as far as I know, it's the earliest that that, that it's actually been was something much later medieval. Right. So um, so Edgbert talking about it, uh, he talks about the customs that that are uh, around the twelve days. This is kind of a translation of what he wrote. The English people have been accustomed to practice fasts, vigils prayers, and the giving of alms, both among the monasteries and the common people, for the full 12 days uh, before the birth of the Lord, right? Um, so, ante natale domini. Uh, so, it's like, you know, there's a, the list of what people do, both secular and sacred folks, and, you know, fasting, vigils, prayer, charity. Um, and that's the, that's the only description that I'm aware of of what people actually did mm-hmm. early on to commemorate Christmas. Bede. Now I'm going to interrupt every now and then to clarify a few things because the three of us were all just kind of chatting and we like to throw around names and titles of obscure books like they're as well known as Beyonce. But Bede, or sometimes called the Venerable Bede, was a Benedictine monk who was one of the main medieval historians in England. He wrote during the 700s and is our authority for a lot of late classical and early, early medieval happenings. Bede describes a holiday that's it's a pre-Christian holiday that was set for the 25th of December. And this is cool. I didn't know this, but it's called Modernicht, which means the Mother's Night or Night of the Mother's. And he's totally vague, right? Um, so he says, when we celebrate the birth of the Lord, that same night, which we hold so sacred, they, talking about the pre-Christians and the pagans, used to call by the heathen word, Muldranicht, that is Mother's Night, because, as we suppose, uh, of the ceremonies they enacted all through the night. Mm-hmm. Right? So he says... You, have you you probably heard about this already? I've heard of Mother Night, but I want to know what he says about it. That's I... all he says. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he says. You know, he hedges, like, as we suspect. So he, he probably knew more, but, 
you know, these early uh, church fathers or these early writings, they never really will describe what the competing traditions are. Right. They just are good at absorbing them. All right. Um, so, you know, this is Yuletide and they think it's, that's kind of uh, analogous to what he's talking about, but um, that's kind of the, the holiday that lines up. That's a non-Christian holiday. No one knows for sure what, what went on. Um, right. But there's nighttime ceremonies, right. That probably were different from fast vigils and prayers. I would guess. From what I know about it, Mother Night was kind of connected to like an All Souls Eve kind of thing where where it was more of a sort of ancestral worship. And I forget exactly, the as I recall, the name Mother Night has less to do with what actually it was. Like I remember there's sort of some odd, you know, people argue why why Mother Night because it's not particularly yeah. about mothers or, or any sort of fertility rite or anything like that. It's more about yeah. um, connected to sort of getting in touch with ghosts and ancestors. I wonder if it's matrilineal, you know. Right? Probably should be. That would make yeah. a lot of sense, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, well, I just struck by the plural, Mother's. Mother's Night, yeah. Right, so it's not like Earth Mother Night or something like right. that. It's it's the plural is, I mean, yeah. So so those are two, two early references, but there's not a lot, right, um, that I could find. There's I found some laws, um, Alfred, right? So these law codes would have been late 9th century. That, by the way, would be King Alfred, sometimes called Alfred the Great. He's usually considered the most intellectual of the old Anglo-Saxon kings. He beat a bunch of invading Vikings, converted one of their main leaders to Christianity, and then instituted one of the first widespread written legal systems in England, all this during the late 800s. And he, he mentions Christmas among other uh, holy festivals, right? So one of the Lacos says if anybody steals on a particular day, which would include Sunday, any Sunday, I guess, Christmas, Easter, or Holy Thursday and rogation days, they get fined double for for the theft, right? So creating, committing a crime on Christmas, you get doubly fined, right? But it's not unique to Christmas. It's just one of many. Hmm. Um, and also Alfred's laws say that... Um, there are certain days throughout the year that people don't have to work. So effectively they'd be like holidays that we would think of mm -hmm. rather than just holy days. They'd actually be time off. And the 12 days of Christmas is um, included in the list as is Easter. But with Easter, it's seven days uh, before and after Easter. So it's actually a longer holiday. The Easter holiday is the full uh, two weeks. Oh, wow. But it's interesting, right? In the law, it says that um, this is given to all free men, but not to slaves or unfree laborers, right? So it's kind of a hard little reminder of, of kind of social hierarchies uh, mm -hmm. in early medieval England, where, where there were a lot of people who, who weren't free, right? Who were bound to, to where they were living and um, yeah. subordinate. Um, so, By the way, the two weeks for Easter, that's more than I've come across i mean definitely easter was you know for a long time more important yeah it says seven days at and seven days after that's wow. a, that's two weeks is a long holiday i like the idea yes we should revive this holiday <laughs> and i have the same thing for the later tradition too that and not for easter but for christmas that you'd get about two weeks off for the whole 12 days of christmas mm-hmm 
Right. From Christmas Eve through January 6th and the Feast of the Epiphany. See, the medieval, these guys are lenient people. Like people would still like they'd celebrate the 12 days, but you wouldn't get all 12 off. Like by the time you're getting up to Victorian times, nobody's right. getting that much time off. Like even Elizabethan stuff, they'd celebrate all 12 days, but it's not really a time of rest or anything like that. Yeah, you know, the the cliche of the medieval period is that it's just mud and hard work and disease. But looking at the, these laws, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of time off. Yeah. I mean, those are just two. I mean, it's a much longer list. But those are the two longest um, holidays. But at the same time, they're having feasts all of the time. And so somebody's got to be doing all the cooking and cleaning and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that never actually <laughs> ends. So someone is cooking the feast for 10,000 people that Richard II supposedly had in 1377. So it's not a day for everybody all the time. Right, right. So that's I, that's why that qualifier is interesting in King Alfred's Law Code, right? Except for slaves and unfree workers. Yeah. Somebody's got somebody's to gotta make it all happen, right? While the, everyone else sits around and eats, I suppose. <laughs> and then the, the last thing is in that I found in, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's one of the longest histories written in Anglo-Saxon. It was written and collected during that same King Alfred's reign in the 800s, and it's how we know the vast majority of the history of that period. There's a long description of King Alfred uh, kind of resisting or being overwhelmed by the Danes as they were invading and moving into England in the late ninth century. And they, the Vikings made a sneak attack on Wessex the morning after Twelfth Night. Okay, Twelfth Night. You may know that's the name of a Shakespeare play. You may also have caught on that the 12 days of Christmas isn't an arbitrary number. According to the tradition, there were 12 days between Christ's birth and the arrival of the three wise men, which was when he was formally introduced to the Gentiles or the rest of the world. So that period's usually considered like a holy period, and in some countries, particularly Eastern Europe, that period's still more important than Christmas. Kids often don't even get their gifts until the 12th day or 12th night, January 6th which is also called Epiphany or sometimes called Three Kings Day. And it actually gets way more complicated than that if you're trying to nail down exact days with different calendars and lots of traditions and regions have their own version. But for now, just remember 12 days after Christmas. Easy. And they, the Vikings made a sneak attack on Wessex the morning after Twelfth Night, which caught everyone off guard, presumably because uh, the English were celebrating the, the, the holiday. Uh, and they they almost took over Wessex on that date. And Alfred, this is when he went into hiding in the swamps and eventually rallied and pushed them out. But Twelfth Night in that year was was I guess the presence was the Vikings pretty much taking almost taking English uh, England away from from the English because that would have been it, right? Wessex was the only part of England at that time that wasn't under Scandinavian. So it's interesting that Alfred's laws kind of they're explicit about the status of, of the 12 days and then in the actual historical narrative uh it's it seems to be that the scandinavians knew the custom well enough that they could exploit it and and catch the english off guard at christmas it's pretty awesome right it's like a home invasion on christmas morning no one's no one's expecting it <laughs> that's kind of scary i shouldn't i shouldn't have thought about it. i'm gonna worry about it <laughs> I'll never sleep well again. <laughs> and then the only thing I, other thing I have is the wassailing tradition. Here we come a wassailing among the leaves of green, and here we come a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too, and God bless 
Craig, I'm sure you know about this, but that word is is attested late, well, medieval-wise later, so only in the 13th century and after does it show up in writing anyway. But wassail is from an old English expression, wassail, which means be well or be whole, be healthy, right? So th there must be, or it seems like that, that tradition of going wassailing is probably really old, and it kind of maintains the, the early English pronunciation in the practice. Because I, when I was young, I had no idea what the hell that song was talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. I, I, um, and only when, when, you know, I was learning old English did I think, oh, that's, that's what it is. Was sailing, you know, you look at the word, it looks like <laughs> some kind of boating thing, but I think it's kind of just drinking and so, you know, to your health type thing. Um, but there's no reference of that practice um, under that name that I'm aware of in the early medieval material. There are a lot of uh, discussions of, of sort of traveling celebrations, like um, some Celtic that are, that are supposedly have Celtic origins. There's Ren Day. I don't know if you guys have heard about Ren Day, where young boys are supposed to go out and basically kill a bird kill a wren and then they parade around the city with the wren but when they're parading around they're basically doing wassail stuff where they come to people's houses and then sing songs and they say you know let us in or give us it's kind of like trick-or-treat it's like either give us all your food and drink or we'll, we won't stop singing <laughs> and, and irritating dead birds with them? part of the thing was they carry a dead bird and they tie it to a stick and it's like the leading thing of the procession no, that's something i've never I've yeah, Ren, Ren Day. Yeah, it's. I found it because there are there are a few old Victorian cards that are just of dead birds, and just trying to figure out what the dead bird was supposed to be. That's the closest thing I could find that would be other than sort of like vague Victorian, you know, sympathy for something small and suffering, um, which still seems pretty gruesome even even by their standards. But yeah, so I but I found that, and then there's a lot of other sort of traveling, caroling, wassailing type traditions that are all about going through a town or through from like farm to farm from household to household and and i found some descriptions of what original wassail might have been which is really nasty because it's like this frothy frothy rotten apple alcoholic something <laughs> that they actually put like fermented bread in so it has this film on top of of actual like stringy stuff and but oh, you're supposed to go it's it's absolutely nasty sounding some of the things that i've seen yeah yeah it is amazing how all these folk traditions cluster around the holiday mm -hmm. because there's very little description of popular traditions from the early period and most of the writing that survives is written by people in the church so it's all about mm -hmm. the liturgy it's all about the the sacred meaning only and so that's why that thing that bead when he mentions mother's night you know those little passing comments um that's the only kind of evidence that survives in, in writing. All right, I'm done with the Anglo-Saxon stuff, if Misty wants to take it away. Well, to pick up on something Scott said about Christmas, um, it comes from Christ's Mass, and we have records from as early as early 12th century, so 1123 or so, in actually the Old English Chronicle that makes reference to Christ's Mass. Being mm -hmm. held. So it is slightly later than Scott's period. 
other things I have. Well, apparently the antiquarian scholar John Stowe found an account of an early Christmas tree because we think about Christmas trees being so important and being things that you bring into the house, but that wasn't the case. People in England would just decorate the trees outdoors with holly or ivy or sometimes even apples. And that's pretty cool because most people will say that it was definitely brought over from the Germans in mid-1800s. Stowe found an account supposedly from 1444 of a tree that was actually set up in a public courtyard in London and decorated with holly and ivy for the enjoyment of the people at the Christmas season. Oh, wow. Um, But people would bring things like holly and ivy and bay leaves into the house for decoration and to a certain extent superstition um, surrounding holly as a lucky plant that could survive even the harshest of winters. Mm-hmm. Um, and also mistletoe was thought to bring fertility, protect crops, and keep witches away. <laughs> so there's some of that merging of Christmas and Halloween that you were talking about with the sort of trick-or-treaters. Yeah, yeah. Is that something you found, like like the, the holly and the that evergreen stuff, that it, was, it, it pops up a little bit, even in the older versions of things? I was just trying to figure that out, too, because that's that's something else that a lot of people will want to throw out as definitely a connection to like old pagan folk traditions, worship of holly and worship of evergreen stuff. I just I wonder when that these kind of um, explanations became popular because yeah. there's this romanticism and it's later of, of kind of the pagan past or the Germanic mm-hmm. heritage, like a 19th century, late 18th century. Yeah. Um, where I think people really dug this kind of uh, history for traditions, whether or not it was accurate or not. Yes. Um, yeah, I usually expect it not to be real, which is why I was curious. I was like, oh, that they actually mentioned that. That's actually pretty cool because I uh, assumed they made it up. Well, at least as early as the 16th century, Stowe is saying, I found a late 15th century account or mid 15th century account of holly and ivy decorating a tree. And we do have Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is set at Christmas time, in which the Green Knight comes in and disrupts the holiday feast, carrying an axe and a sprig of holly. Misty, would you mind, just because I'm sure lots of people aren't going to know, would would you mind doing a quick summary of Green Knight, just so people know the overall story? I'll do my best. So in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the poem is set at Christmas, and it begins during a feast at King Arthur's court that is disrupted by the entry of a massively large green knight who comes in carrying an axe and a sprig of holly. And he challenges the court to a game in which someone will deal him a blow with the axe, and a year later he will return the blow. And Arthur and Gawain don't realize that he is clearly a magical figure since he is completely green and Gawain strikes off the green knight's head. However, the green knight then picks up his head and says, well, you have to come meet me at my castle in a year, find me at the green chapel. And then when Gawain goes, the poem has a brief moment that goes through the passing of the seasons of the year. And then in wintertime again, Gawain sets out and he's not sure exactly where he's going, but he heads off into the wilderness near Wales, and he prays to have a place of respite and safety where he can hear Christmas Mass and Mass leading up to the Christmas holidays. And magically, a castle appears. When he gets there, the host welcomes him heartily, 
and he's able to hear mass there and rest and stay safe there. And the host proposes another game where he will go out hunting every day for the next three days. And whatever he wins at the hunt, he will exchange with Gawain for whatever Gawain has won while he's at home. And so the knight goes out hunting and Gawain stays at home where Gawain is tempted each day by the Lord's wife and only exchanges kisses with her up until the last day when she convinces him to take a decorative belt that he can use to protect himself from the blow he knows he's about to receive at the Green Chapel. And Gawain hides that from the Lord. He turns over all the kisses and refuses to say where they've come from um, in exchange for the deer, boar, and fox that the Lord has killed each day at the hunt. Um, So Gawain holds back the belt and wears it to save his own life at the Green Chapel, where he finds out that the Green Knight, in fact, is the same man as the host at the castle, whose name there was Bertilak. And this was all tied up and bound up with the initial test at the beginning of the story. How's that? Perfect. No, that's excellent. I guess I should say, too, that Gawain does escape with his life because he was faithful to the Lord and did nothing except kiss the lady and only held back the belt because he wanted to save his life. There you go. So not your normal Christmas story. Not at all a normal Christmas story, but there's the bits (laughs) and pieces that invoke Christmas for medieval audiences, like the feast, the playing of games. Um, and the superstitions about the appearance of possible supernatural spirits during the long, dark days and nights of winter. Hey, do they talk about when he goes one year later uh, to the Green Knight's court? Do they talk about celebrations? I can't remember. Uh, in Bertilak's castle or is it just in the beginning? It's mostly feasting and mass that they talk about when we get to Bertilak's court because it's right. setting up a contrast to the Arthurian court where they're waiting for a game. As right. so often, I must have a miracle or some kind of marvel before we can all sit down and have our right. feast. And that's when the Green Knight comes in and brings a game. And that does the beheading game where he says, you know, deal me a blow with the axe and a year later I will return that blow to you. And that does fit neatly into several medieval traditions and beliefs, including playing games and pranks and even gambling. Though the gambling was usually games of dice rather than literally risking one's life. (laughs) So the games were stuff like backgammon or chess. And dice was so common in late medieval and early years of early modern Christmas festivities that Henry VIII actually prohibited his servants from playing dice in 1511. But he nevertheless said, okay, you can play dice and gamble during the 12 days of Christmas. (laughs) It's very permissive, right? Yeah. And then, of course, there is the symbolism of the holly, which was supposedly magical um, because it could survive the harshest winters, according to some old Celtic myths. But during the Middle Ages, it certainly could symbolize, according to heraldry, it could symbolize truth and peace. And by extension, potentially became a symbol of Christ and Christmas. That's very cool. Is that something that's in the poem? Is that something that you've seen other places? I don't know that I have. It's certainly something that comes out in the poem because the poem is so much 
about prayer, confession, and the consideration of how Gawain lives as a knight and what he values and should value that leads to sort of a rebirth for him. And it's a big focus on Mary too. Like he has an image of the Virgin Mary on the inside of the shield, I think. Yes, that's correct. And it's actually to Mary that he prays for a place to hear mass. And he's said to be Mary's knight. So it's very much a religious text that is appropriate for the Christmas time. Do people ever write about that much? I'm just curious, like when, when, when you've had to teach it, is the Christmas angle ever come up or do people kind of, eh, it's too weird, too different? Yes, actually, because I ask my students to think about what the axe and the holly represent and to do a little bit of light mm-hmm. research into those kinds of things and come up with the sense of the mixed message that the Green Knight is sending when he comes in with a threatening axe and the holly, which could symbolize peace and Christmas. Um, I have had students say things like, you know, is the Green Knight Santa Claus? Because the figure is big and burly <laughs> and jolly in his um, Lord form. And I would say no, uh, mostly because the St. Nicholas tradition was still evolving. His feast day was actually December 6th. And that's when children might expect small gifts or something. Right, right. And so the merging of gift giving with Christmas and a figure recognizable as Santa Claus was a much later development that I think was early 19th century. The only thing I was thinking is that Father Christmas, so the English version is, especially in older versions, he's usually dressed in all green. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the only connection that would make me think that, especially like the English version, once he got kind of... De-saint-sanctified, de-sanctified, I don't know what a word for, but just becomes sort of more of a folk figure. Um, English Santa is usually all green and riding a goat, but that's. <laughs> but it feels like a lot of folk figures are known for wearing green in the way yeomen and mm-hmm. Robin Hood are supposedly always decked out in green, but it has something to do maybe more with the Christmas tree and the forest and things like that than with the green night explicitly, I would yeah. But yeah, so when I was thinking about the oldest Christmas stories that I could think of, uh, Gawain and the Green Knight was the the earliest I could come up with, apart from, you know, if you count the actual Christmas story <laughs> as as an early Christmas story. But um, oh, if you want to do weird things for your listeners, sometimes you should think about doing something on the infancy gospels. So this is totally by chance, but I hope you remember Benito Sereno, who's been on the show twice, once to talk about Christmas comics and the second time to talk about the Yule Lads. But his show, Apocrypals, just walked through and discussed the Infancy Gospel of Thomas as their Christmas special this year. There's a link in the show notes, but definitely go check it out. Total random synchronicity that we mentioned it here, too, but definitely worth your time. So these are apocryphal stories that relay the life of Christ as a child when he does things like rides a rainbow and his little child friends also want to do this and break their necks. And Jesus has to perform a miracle to save their lives. <laughs> what, what texts are these? Um, they're called the infancy gospels. And so it's, it's grappling with the problem of what do you do when you have a child that is both a horrible five-year-old child and also a God. It's like comics about Superman when he was a toddler. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I do have one more thing that might be relevant for um, Craig's fun current podcast. So have you heard of the English tradition of a boy's bishop? Yes, but I don't know a whole lot about it. It dates back to the 12th century. And a boy bishop, sometimes um, an altar boy or, or some other scholar in the 
church educational system would be elected to preside over the Feast of Holy Innocence on December 28th, I think that is. And this would include a procession through town and also giving a sermon. Oh, the kid actually had to give a sermon? Oh, wow. Yes, but the kid could write it himself. And so there are a couple that are preserved. And one bishop basically wished all his teachers would end up on the gallows. <laughs> and another announces that the faults in children are not their own fault, but it's because their parents and schoolmasters don't teach children to do good works or chastise them if they do evil. And he claims that this is an attempt to reform my elders. And these are preserved in English from the 15th and 16th century. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I'm going to look that up and see if if I are. Do you have any idea? Are they are they just like behind Ebo? No, they were published in 1875, so you can get them on um, Project Gutenberg or or the Hathi Press. I will find links to those. I, I have one thing I forgot. Actually, I was trying to think if there's any old English uh, literature that has Christmas in it. You know, obviously there's nothing like mm-hmm. Gowan and the Green Knight, but there are a series of poems about um, there are they're Christmas poems. Uh, they're most often known as the Advent lyrics. And what they are is they're, um, they work from short Latin verses that were liturgical verses. And they take the idea of that verse and they expand it into a longer um, poem. But what, one of these is actually a dramatic a mini drama of a dialogue between Mary and Joseph. That's interesting because the Latin antiphon that it's based on doesn't mention Mary. Um, and it's just kind of like Joseph. What you're in a you're in a bind here, right? Um, basically, is how can you explain the fact that your wife is whether Mary is is pregnant, but is supposed to be a virgin, right? Um, but what the poem does is it creates this conversation between them. That's that's interesting because it it kind of imagines it as if um, people are gossiping about Mary, right? Um, like that they're in this situation where rumor and gossip is, is, is hurting her, giving her emotional pain. Right. So they, they have this conversation mm-hmm. um, about it. And um, then the poet kind of explains the mystery of it all. Um, but in the manuscript in the Exeter book, someone actually marked the, the parts, the speaking parts. And people speculate that this might've been kind of inspired by or actual, um, part of a performance uh, at a service, right? Where people would speak the mm-hmm. parts, but, but it's interesting because the, you know, I'm not going to read it out loud, but um, the way that they talk, it seems more worried about uh, social shaming, right. Uh, than, than it does about divinity at first. Um, but then, then of course she, she explains, you know, why it doesn't need to worry, but she talks about, I've heard words of enormous pain and harm. They insult me. Uh, they, they issue cruel words at me. Um, and one part, uh, when Joseph speaks, he talks about how he doesn't know what to do because if he tells the truth, no one will believe him um, or that she would be stoned and would, would die, right? And then he talks about the pain of having to conceal um, the, the act and the word they use in Old English uh, is Mordor, which is murder. It's the original uh, Mordor. It's, we get murder from Mordor, and Tolkien got Mordor from the word, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's such an intense way to describe what people are seeing as a crime. 
the fact that she has the the Christ child is seen mm-hmm. by the people around them in the village as, as something that's as bad as uh, a kind of a violent killing. So I've always just been kind of struck by by this exchange because there's no, it seems to be totally the invention of the poet, right? Um, there's in the Latin source texts, there's nothing about this whatsoever. It talks about Gabriel announcing Christ's birth to Joseph, but in the poem, it's about it's a much more realistic, you know. But that's the only story in Old English that I'm aware of that's around the the, the Christmas story, right? That's actually really interesting. <laughs> One thing that I've kind of figured out is the more you go back, a lot of Christmas stories, and whether they're solstice or Christian. There's tons and tons of, of connections with darkness yeah. where there, there's always some really violent thing that happens. Um, it's not just that, you know, this is the time when when Christ is born and the world's going to get better or just the, the world's going to come back. But there's always this heavy, heavy, you know, things are dying and, and it's a, like a fight, like a battle between dark and light stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's really cool because that that sounds a lot more like what some of the some of these stories are like yeah i mean when you say that it makes me think of some of these other advent lyrics because some of them are fairly intense you know they talk about calling out to to christ on this holiday to to save them from bad things like uh one of the advent lyrics talks about like a a, uh, a wolf that that afflicts them and the wolf is called the dark shadow of death the ancient enemy so you know, it's the stakes are high, and in these in these poems anyway, um, because there's this sense of danger, spiritual danger anyway. Well, there's also the York Corpus Christi plays, and there's I was thinking about those, right? This trouble about Mary, You're, the things you were saying about his internal debate recalls for me some of that, but it's been so long since I've read it, I don't remember it exactly. Yeah, and those they they take pretty significant li- liberties with the source material. Yes. Absolutely. That's one thing I like about the medieval texts is they, they are certainly willing to um, change the source to, to an extent that you wouldn't think would be possible in, in early modern context. There's another lyric that you might be interested in that is in one of the Sloan manuscripts that is one of the maybe one of the oldest poems about Mary and Jesus in English. It's from about 1400. And it's about the Virgin, and I think it's about Christ's birth. There are some who say it's about the Annunciation. The Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel told Mary who and what she was about to conceive. It's also an old church celebration, still done in Catholic and Orthodox churches, but it was a much bigger deal back in the Middle Ages. It's celebrated in late March, or nine months before Christmas. I bet you guys weren't expecting to learn so much church stuff from a heathen like me. But it's about Mary and the king of all kings being her son. And what's emphasized throughout the lyric is that she is matchless. She is a virgin mother. Um, and the, the thing that some scholars think is about the Annunciation is the line that says that he came very still, which means silently, covertly, um, privately potentially, or also meekly, humbly, and mildly. So there are some who are saying Mm. this is about the Annunciation, but it could also be about the birth, which was supposed to be equally painless for Mary. 
right? That he came, it was a new birth, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to the experiences of most other women. So that could be an interesting poem for people that are interested in looking at something that has by some people been described as one of the first Christmas carols. It's definitely a lyric poem. If it was ever set to music, we no longer have that music, but it's certainly about Mary and Mm -hmm. Jesus. I wonder if there's something in the Ankronowissa too about Christmas or it seems like that could be a text that might, but I don't, I don't know. That would be worth looking at though. It's, well, I don't know. Is it a 13th, messy 13th century? I don't know much, yeah. Um, but it's a, it's like a guidebook to uh, anchoresses who enclose themselves in a church and it's kind of a reflective book, but it's got all kinds of cool metaphors um, drawn from sacred history and things about conduct um, and in the kind of daily life uh, that you would have if you were living in a room attached to a church that you could never leave. <laughs> they could have a cat, right? I always remember that from children's yes, class. Think, yeah. She said at least they could have a cat. <laughs> well, cool. Well, that's actually a lot of good stuff. The only thing I was going to ask Misty is, do you know much about um, how important would you say by late middle ages was Christmas, you know, compared to Easter? I know that's a very vague general question. No, I would say that Easter was still definitely more important than Christmas and even um, Epiphany Eve, which is called Twelfth Night, as I'm sure you know, and Epiphany were often more important than the day of Christ's birth um, because Epiphany was supposedly when Christ was visited by the Magi and was presented you know, unto the world. Yeah, Twelfth Night is usually in in the early text too. It's it's usually marked as the big the bigger the biggest day in the sequence of the 12 days. Right. Which is, I've found a couple of things that were, you know, people talking about coronations on Christmas. Um, Cause Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman emperor and King Edmund of East Anglia in 855 was also crowned supposedly on Christmas. Um, and William the Conqueror. Oh, I, I wonder when that actually was written down. I, I wonder if that was like put, put in in the later hagiography about him. Right. See, that's what I think most people believe is that the Edmund thing, um, since he was supposedly killed, refusing to renounce Christianity to the Danish invaders, he becomes a Christian martyr and saint. So it was probably a back formation to say, let's associate him with Christ and have it be on Christmas. The William the Conqueror thing, too, supposedly, um, since the Battle of Hastings was sometime in October, and he was crowned on Christmas Day. Um, so people are saying, well, this is the way that these kings or the men who wrote their stories aligned their reigns with Christian authority and Christ and divine favor. Hmm. But if Easter and Epiphany were more important in these traditions, then it's it seems like that could also be a modern reading, right? A modern reading into these medieval practices as presented we care about rather than them they used to have big meetings like uh you know all the worthies or big courts on religious holidays uh in the early period and mm-hmm. their most easter is the big meeting date right i i don't think that people have big meetings um around christmas or in the 12 days like they did for easter so like in these legal documents mm-hmm. they talk about the the assemblies and, and easter is the most common that i've seen um kind of landmark date that's cool so even still yeah up through later medieval parts that's what i was thinking but 
I have, I have one one quick thing, Greg, if you have time. It's an old Norse saga, Gretar saga, which is a really late saga, probably at the end of the 14th century, right? So 1400-ish. But um, it's a long story of this character, Gretar, who's kind of as a young guy, kind of a strong man, gets into trouble, but still kind of a heroic character. But as he gets older, he gets into more and more trouble, has a bad temper, and he's eventually involved in some killings and is exiled and kind of lives on the run in Iceland until, he, until he's killed at the end of the saga. But early in his life, he fights a monster called Glom, which is, has lots of similarities to the fight between Beowulf and Grendel. But Glom is um, kind of a shepherd who's hired to drive off an evil spirit that's haunting a farm. And he supposedly mortally wounds this spirit, but himself is killed in the fight. And then he becomes something like a zombie that caught, then he begins to haunt the farm. And then Greta shows up and fights him. And <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's a great story. But it's all set around Christmas. They they key the events to, to the Christmas season. So Glob doesn't come home from tending the sheep on Christmas Eve. And they go out and they find him dead on Christmas Day. Um, they try to bury him the day after Christmas, but because he's corrupt, they can't move his body to bring it near the church. And then the day after that, also um, very close to Christmas, um, he begins to haunt the farm and to drive people away and people started ending up dead. And Greta also comes, I think, I'm not sure if he comes on Christmas either, but there's another incident that happens at Christmas too. So it's kind of a monster fight, kind of a horror story really. But it's set during the Christmas season. That's pretty cool. Um, and I think I think Greta does show up at Christmas as well. It's not. There's no moral, right? <laughs> it ends very badly for Greta. Blom <laughs> curses him. He says, "You know, you would have been a much better." Essentially, he says, "You would have been a great man. You would have been much better, much stronger." But I'm cursing you. You'll never know how good you could have been. And from henceforth, you'll be scared of the dark. You'll never be able to be alone. And he, he, he looks in his eyes when he says this, and Greta is haunted by the sight of Glom's eyes for the rest of his life. And he is afraid of the dark, um, which kind of puts him at risk, and, and he becomes more short-tempered, which leads him to make the, get involved in these killings. So it's almost, you know, the Christmas season is, is the beginning of the end for Greta. So even though he defeats the monster, he is also kind of becomes somewhat monstrous on Christmas. I think that's probably one of my new favorite Christmas stories. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, the Gretter Saga. And, you you know, it's only five pages long if you if you want to read it. Uh, Gretter Saga is long, but the Glob stuff is, is just part of it. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, guys, that's, that's a ton. Thank you so much for all of this. That's a lot of stuff that I know, honestly, probably nobody who's listened to this knew about. So not that I have that poor an opinion of people who are listening. <laughs> but, that's fine, <laughs> but nonetheless. But... Thanks for your time, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. The boar's head and hunter, I bedecked with bays and rosemary. And I pray you, my masters, be merry, for best is in convivio. There are other things I wished I would have asked him about that I thought about later, like the boar's head carol and the tradition of feasting on a boar's head. Thing is, though, like they both said at one point, it's really hard to figure out actual folk traditions when we're going back so far. 
You have to depend on what's been written down, and most of the people who could read and write were connected with the church. So writing things down that still seemed to have pagan connotations was sometimes distasteful, but also potentially dangerous if you're worried about people up above you. So we just don't have a ton of first or even secondhand reports of very much. Still, they gave me a bunch of tips for things I didn't know about, and all of the links to the various texts they mentioned are on the show notes at weirdchristmas.com. But even if you don't feel like going back to read some medieval literature, I hope you at least took away just how hard it is to get a grip on Christmas history from any more than a few hundred years ago. There are entire centuries where there's just nothing to be found. Remember that next time someone tries to tell you something about the quote-unquote real tradition of Christmas. Truth is, there ain't one. Well, there's still more to come. This is coming out on January 3rd, I hope, so I've still got three more days till the wise men show up. I've got two more shows I really hope to get out. One will be a kind of grab bag of small things, the first kind of variety show that I've had. And the last one, I don't really know how to explain it. It's just me talking to a guy, and it's nominally about Christmas, but we'll just leave it as a surprise. If you enjoy the show, whether you're listening to extend your Christmas season or you stumbled on this in the middle of April, please consider helping me out and give just a small $3 donation or increments of $3 at ko-fi.com, coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. It's a super helpful way to help me cover hosting costs and whatnot. I think they also just set up a recurring monthly donation thing too. Just saying. Also check out my Patreon page. For $2 a month there, you'll get access to the year-round podcast I've been trying to do, though admittedly, I didn't get a bonus one out in December. Still, starting in January, there will be a podcast every month about other holidays through the year, and something Christmassy in each one, just to keep the spirit alive. I'm also mailing out actual reproduction postcards to folk throughout the year, which reminds me I need to do that, and some other fun stuff, too. If you can't give cash, a review on Apple Podcasts would really help me show up in the Christmas searches. And I'll send you a postcard any holiday you want if you let me know you did it. If there's even one I've shared that you want in physical form, just let me know. I'll find the best scan I can get a hold of. Just email me after you submit the review, weirdxmas at gmail.com or a DM on social media. Speaking of, follow me on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. Cards are starting to slow down just a touch, but there are still plenty of New Year ones, and the Valentines will start soon. But things kind of taper off after that. I try to sprinkle some weird Christmas joy in your feed throughout the year, though, so please consider following. Thanks again to Misty and Scott for chatting with me, and to you two, I'm sorry I didn't get you out before Christmas. Life and work really don't deserve to demand this much time from me. But like I said, Christmas isn't over yet, so stay tuned. And until, until next time, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging sweaty sock. Juan that opera with the surest suta, the draught of March that passed to the ruta and bothered every vein in sweet liquor, of which Vertu and genre is the floor. See, I can still do it. Didn't even have to look it up. <laughs>